This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week is part one of our Relationships and Mental Health mini-series. This week's guest is Laura Dabney, who's a psychiatrist who runs a private practice in Virginia. She specializes in helping successful people, mainly men, achieve the relationships of their dreams. And depending on each client, that can mean vastly different things. Usually, it's to do with romantic relationships, but there can often be other relationships in their life that inform the support she gives them. Another thing that I found really fascinating is that I felt that her approach and the way she brands her service could be partly informed by the stigma that some of her clients may feel, that they may not feel comfortable reaching out for help in terms of emotional expression or communication, particularly if they're from a high-powered business background where communication is such a big part of their job, it'd be difficult to then admit to a professional that they're really struggling with communication at home with the person that surely they should be able to communicate with the best. And when I asked her about that off air, she did confirm that that was part of the way that she brands it. So I thought she was a really ace guest in terms of packing in all those nuances of how relationships can be positive on your mental health, negative on your mental health, or just be quite complicated. Mm. And at times we need someone else to help us untangle that. Yeah, I love that about her. I love her diversity of her approach. I found that really, really novel. Absolutely. So first off, we've got a few stats. And I've got one from the Office for National Statistics, who found that 89% of people that they surveyed said that relationships are what matters most to our well-being. I thought that was a really nice one to start on. It's such a 89%, it's such a massive stat. And certainly in what I see personally and through the podcast, particularly romantic relationships can just have a phenomenal impact on your mental health. You're absolutely right. Every relationship, not just romantic, but yeah, particularly romantic relationships. It's all I've ever loved and valued really I'm just so happy to be part of this podcast that enables us to really to think and talk about it a lot more it's it's everything to me relationships are everything why why would you live and be here without them and they need work like but every relationship that I've got you know I've had to learn to kind of back off as you do Bobby as well when it comes to like pushing the boundaries of them like I want to push the boundaries a bit of my relationships I struggle to have kind of peripheral non-meaning relationships some of my friends do and I really struggle to have those right you know and so I just because I value them so much is the reason why I'm making that point absolutely I think that's one of our big similarities Mm -hmm. that we're just really fascinated in people yeah and so if someone's in our life it's because we really want to get to know them really well and so sometimes that can come across (laughs) as quite intense which I'm sure is only being made worse by having a mental health podcast and being used to interviewing strangers mm. about really personal life experiences. Yeah. I think I'm hardly getting less questioning <laughs> when meeting new people personally. But no, I totally agree. People are what I live for, really. 
same. Mm-hmm. And it was great to hear that from Laura, you know, going into it from a real medicine, scientific standpoint as a psychiatrist, you know, learning, you know, the detail about the brain scientifically. In-depth study for a long time to become a doctor. Yeah, and well, now she finding herself working with people about on relationships that are less scientific and more about connection and openness and love, you know. That's one of the things I love about her that she talked about it being like a puzzle working with her clients and she's just fascinated in in working that out and who doesn't want that from someone they're getting support from you want them to be that invested in figuring out what's going on for you and helping you move past it so I've no doubt she was born for what she does yeah such a natural addict The next stat I wanted to bring in, we have actually mentioned before when we last did an episode on relationships with Emma Burdett. In her episode, we talked at length about a very unhealthy relationship she's had. So if you haven't already listened to that episode, I think that's a really good one to listen to in terms of what a relationship can be like when there aren't safe boundaries put in place or when someone's felt unable to leave a bad situation, like some of those that we describe in today's episode. The reason I'm bringing the stat up again is just it was so powerful and shocking to me the first time we used it. It's from the Mental Health Foundation, who found in a review of 148 studies that the influence of social relationships on the risk of death is comparable with well-established risk factors of mortality, such as smoking and alcohol consumption, and exceed the influence of other risk factors, such as physical inactivity and obesity. And that one, I can totally believe, but it doesn't make it any less shocking that something like obesity that is so acknowledged as being dangerous to our health is potentially not as dangerous as being in an unhealthy relationship. And I know certainly from my own experience, which I talk about in that episode with Emma, that's the kind of message that I think we need to hear more. Because when I was in a very unhealthy relationship, it might have helped me get out of it sooner had I known just how dangerous that was to my health, both at the time and when recovering from it. It's absolutely key that we recognize that I mean it's obviously easier to measure obesity and you know than it is to measure an unhealthy relationship's Mm -hmm. impact on somebody I also think it's worth as asking the question which is what actually a relationship is to who and to how and to how it all works and what they are so that our next generation and young people don't grow up with the same pressures of trying to have a relationship that you have to have a relationship that you do go to get married that you know you're searching you're searching to find a boyfriend. Are you single? Oh, are you in a relationship? You know, people. why are people holding on to relationships that aren't not even abusive or unhealthy or negative, but just not right for them? Absolutely. And that's been a massive learning process for me, figuring out what it is I'm looking for, not what might be expected of me, not this kind of societal notion that mm-hmm. we all grow up and get married. You know, that is... That's what I learned at school. You know, we draw pictures of weddings and, you know, kids from a very young age were planning their weddings whilst I was, I was planning my funeral. And that's probably a symptom of the depression I was experiencing. But that gives you an idea of how ingrained 
relationship expectations can be. And actually, for me, I found it really transformative to learn to step back from that and figure out what is it I really want. Absolutely. And you might just have fun figuring it out for the next 10 or 20 years. You might, you know, who, who, who's ever going to know? Because, you know what, in 10 years, you're going to be different to what you are now. So the person that you might figure out that you might want to be with might not be that person in 10 years either. And that's cool. You know, I mean, obviously people would have a different opinion to me who really believe in marriage and all of those things. And it's not that I disbelieve. I mean, who am I to have a judgment on whether marriage is right or wrong? I'm not married, but I've been in a relationship for 21 years. And I come from a completely single parent family. Both of my parents just advocate freedom and just live <laughs> life and do what you want to do. And then I'm happily, I'm ha- I happen to be, you know, the longest serving relationship out of all of my friends and all of my peers. And my partner comes from a background where you get married at 18. Like you get married at 18 or you are not in a relationship. So we, even for me, learning about that from him, I'm like, what do you mean? It's not all right not to be married. <laughs> And now, 21 years later, we're still not married and we have quite an unconventional relationship. And I love it most of the time. <laughs> you know, the relationship sometimes says we all, we all go through ups and downs, but you might want to cut that out, Pete. But no, you can keep it if you want. Um, but yeah, so that all shapes and sizes are relationships. And I think that we really should promote that as children grow in order for us to be more fulfilled in them healthily. Yeah. And you reminded me of a really great point that we came back to a few times with Laura in the interview, that a lot of the core of what she does is helping empower her clients to ask what they want out of the relationship. Yeah. The kind of rebranding of what might be considered selfishness to be talking about what you as an individual want in a relationship that involves both of you. Yeah. But actually particularly when things are going badly, that's absolutely vital. Because if you're unhappy, they're going to be unhappy. The whole relationship is unhappy. So we do need to ask that. And if you enjoy her insights, particularly around that, she mentions a free gift at the end of the episode, which is a guide about when to know if you need to be more selfish in your relationship. And she's really trying to kind of reclaim that word. So that's something to look out for in the episode and that she mentions at the end as well. Two more statistics I wanted to mention as well. One I really love because it acknowledges the positive effect of relationships that aren't just romantic relationships. So this is again from the Mental Health Foundation who reported, having a friend who is happy and lives close can increase happiness by as much as 25%. Similar results have been found for cohabiting spouses, 8%, siblings, 14%, and next-door neighbours, 34%. So I found that really fascinating that out of all those percentages on who is likely to positively impact your happiness the most by them being happy, it was your neighbour. And I don't even necessarily have an answer on why that is, but I guess... With a romantic relationship, there's a certain amount of ingrained drive that you're trying to make a good relationship because that's what you do. Whereas with a neighbour, there isn't that default that we're automatically going to get along. And maybe that's why it can have such a positive impact if someone that you don't actually live with Mm. or have to communicate with a whole lot is going out of their way to be a positive influence in your life in the same way a neighbour can have a hugely detrimental impact on your life if they behave certain other ways. 
Yeah, I think when we looked at that stat as well, it was connected to community. And and that's where I think that connection is so important. You actually start living around your community like people used to. It doesn't happen so much now. And maybe that's what we're seeing, actually. Maybe that's why they're still the one group that find the most happiness in their relationships, because we just don't do that anymore. And then the final stats I wanted to share are from a combined survey conducted by the charities Mind and Relate. They surveyed over a thousand people with experience of mental health problems who were currently in romantic relationships. And I found these findings quite positive and uplifting compared to some of them that we read. So first up, 74% of people surveyed with a mental health problem said they regularly talk about their mental health with their partner. And three in five, 60% of these people said that it made their relationship easier to manage. So I really love that because honestly, I was pleasantly surprised by that. The amount of people talking about their mental health regularly. Mm. Regularly, of course, could be open to interpretation. I feel like uh, I speak about mental health to a regularity (laughs) 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 that other people do not. But no, I thought that was really positive. And also that people said it made the relationship easier to manage that communication about mental health. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's always nice to hear what a positive impact more communication about mental health has. Yeah. The next one is that three in five, so again, 60% of people with mental health problems said that being in a relationship has had a positive impact on their mental health. Yay. And lastly, over 50% of partners surveyed said that dating someone with a mental health problem wasn't as daunting as they thought it might be. Interesting. Yeah. So there's, I mean, that still to an extent speaks to the stigma of will someone with mental illness be difficult to date or get along with? But it's actually quite a positive finding on that, that even though there can be some of those ingrained stigmas and stereotypes, actually people are making a difference by communicating about their mental health and by working at managing it. They're having a really positive impact on how their partner sees those living with mental illness. Bobby, I think you've hit the nail on the head there because I was, I was just about to say, but you said it before me, <laughs> right, though, about as, how important it is as well for people who are living with a mental illness to learn and understand that as much as they can themselves. That is surely what then has a positive impact on their partner because they can express to the partner what might be going on for them how they might feel when this happens what they need when they're feeling like this because I guess a lot of the breakdowns that have come in the past and that still happen now where it hasn't been so positive is because actually when you first start dealing with something yourself you don't know what it is yourself you don't know how to deal with it how to manage it what you need from your partner your family your friends your work your employees you don't know the more we start to be able to own our own illness learn about it work with it show ourselves care and love with it then that's when maybe our partners are managing to support us better I totally agree with that and the last thing that makes me feel very positive about that stat is it just highlights the massive impact you can have that by being open about your mental health by having these conversations people really do make a difference to the lives and perceptions of others that at times it can feel like we're not even having a dent in the stigma, but actually every time 
you own your mental illness and you're honest about it, you're creating a relatable face of what is otherwise quite a stigmatized beast. Yeah. And that makes me excited and uplifted. Yeah. And a great example of that is our guest, that she at times told me that she has clients that do carry a lot of stigma around mental health or don't want to admit to communication issues or emotional issues. But actually, by her creating a safe space, people do open up more about these things and make real changes that don't just positively impact their life, Mm -hmm. but also for every one of her clients. There's all the relationships in their life, not just the romantic one, that are being improved by them getting support. Absolutely. So she's someone that, if you can't already tell, we both find insightful and inspirational. So we'll get into that episode with Laura in a moment. And then next week, we'll be back with part two of two of our Relationships mini-series. We'll be focusing more on relationship breakups and the potential aftermath in terms of our mental health there. For now, please enjoy this interview with Laura. But first... Who's our sponsor? Let's find out. If you get a custom-tailored suit, it's going to fit perfectly and make you look great. Think about that with a Noble First for your organization. No matter what the size of your company is, a Noble First will analyze your data and collaborate with you to custom-tailor digital solutions so you can focus on making your organization grow. When it comes to data-centric solutions specifically for your organization, choose a Noble First. A Noble First makes living simple. See for yourself at anoblefirst.com, E-N-N-O-B-L-E-First.com. back to fourth grade, I had a very clever teacher who, I think when we, looking back, I think when we got really noisy and rambunctious, she put us in a group, had our chairs in a circle, we called it circle time, but she asked these questions about, I think, emotional problems that were happening in the classrooms. She would ask somebody about, you know, their goldfish dying or, or serious, she asked one girl about her parents divorced. And so we would talk about these, you know, emotional problems is fourth graders. And I would go home and be all, I guess, ginned up. And my mom said to me, my mom was the first one to say, you know, that interest is called psychiatry. So it's the first time I ever heard that term. And that stuck with me. And so my interest in people's emotions spread when I was in high school, people would call me peripheral friends, friends would call me and talk about their breakup, or their boyfriend girlfriend problems and then I got off the phone and my mother <laughs> would tease me so, take two aspirin have a good cry and call Dr. Laura in the morning <laughs> so that all just my identities were wrapped around <clears throat> emotions and relationships and so and then and it's just been there ever since that's so interesting because I feel like that's so common that people that end up in a mental health field are often somehow typecast from quite a young age in that way <laughs> And I certainly have that parallel that I've always been the go-to person that my friends talk about relationships to, which mm-hmm. at times is quite weirdly novel because I've spent most of my adult life being more single than my friends. <laughs> and yet it's me they come to about relationship issues. Well, you can understand, you know, you can, you can coach without having to do. So I think that's perfectly normal, actually. That's good to know. <laughs> and so you'd 
got this initial interest. It sounds like you'd had a real fascination in, in people and what kind of makes them tick. And yes. so at what point did you then start working towards a career in psychiatry? Well, then it became the whole, you know, what in mental health to do. Mm-hmm. And I sort of had this crisis when I was in college. I did, took all the psych courses. I actually was not allowed. I was not permitted by my parents to take psychology. But in any event, I had to, if they were going to pay for college, I had to do something worthwhile, which so that was business, but they didn't have business at my college, so it was economics. But I did not like economics, so I, I double majored. I figured out a compromise. So I double majored in economics and psychology, but when I was, so I was taking my psychology classes all at the end. So senior year, I took this psychology of neurology, and I loved that class. And that teacher had had me for several classes, and she's the first one to say, this is my senior year, mind you. She said, you know, you may be more interested in psychiatry than psychology. You maybe more interested in medicine than psychology. Mm-hmm. And that just threw me for a complete loop. Uh, you know, then I was torn asunder. I didn't know which way to go. So I decided to just go do a very neutral, non-ladder climbing job. And during that time, I got to volunteer at uh, several different places, especially this one halfway home where they had a group. They had the psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. So I got to see what they did in real time. And that's where I realized, now, wait a minute. <laughs> The psychiatrist has all the power. He came in once a week, could get the prescriptions done. He actually did therapy in front of us with the people there, which was, of course, fascinating. And so I thought, well, geez, I I can, I want to learn how to do everything. I might as well go get an MD. That's how I went down the course of psychiatry as opposed to anything else. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And do you mind me asking, with your parents kind of steering you away from psychology, do you know why that was? You know, I have actually asked my mom about that. I think there was really a sense at that time some majors were harder to get jobs with. It came from a place of wanting the best for me, but it felt so controlling and so limited. And who knows, maybe because she said no, I even pursued it even more. I don't know. But that's my best guess because she really was, she had a hard time putting that in words. And it is really tricky. And as a parent, you do want the best for your child, but it's not always a logical train of thought it can be that that <laughs> thing worries me and I can't exactly express why exactly. Um, the last time I interviewed a psychiatrist she told me that when she was coming to the point in her medical degree where she was specializing her parents were very keen to steer her down the surgical rather than the psychiatry route a lot of that in their case came down to mental health stigma I do think my mom had a little bit, she once said in an emotional outburst, she says, if you go into psychiatry, they're going to think you're doing it because you're something wrong with your mother. Ironically, the three women in my family, three, my two sisters and I all went into mental health. <laughs> oh, wow. She had to learn how to deal with that. And I had to say, mom, people think that that's erroneous and they'll have to get over that. It's just an interest of mine. It's nothing to do with you. Absolutely. And people are always going to have these opinions. So if it's not about that, they'll trace something else back to your parenting anyway. So it's one of those things that's going to kind of happen no matter what you do as a parent and how perfect you are and all the right things you do. Exactly. And so you then get to the point where you do your MD. And at that point, did you have, even within psychiatry, a particular specialism or were you just keen to learn everything? In medicine, so you get your MD, then you go into psychiatry residency where you learn about psychiatry for four years. 
So in there, we learned everything, which I loved being exposed to all that because, again, I needed to figure out where exactly in psychiatry did I fit in. The first two years is all emergency psychiatry. So I'm in the ER, you're doing medications, and you're in the unit, the psychiatry unit, and it's so exciting. It's all this lights and everybody needs you and wants you. Mm. It's <laughs> also then, a very intense start, though, is your first role. It is. It's an intense start. And they do it that way, I think, because then you have that basis for what's emergency versus right. what's non-emergency, I guess. But then there's this cutoff after the second year where you go and you learn, you're learning therapy, but you're they basically, you know, it's all trial by fire. So you're in the outpatient clinic and you're then suddenly I'm sitting in this room, this dark room with this patient. And I have no idea what I'm doing. And I take it to a supervisor. So it's and we talk about, you know, how to do these different techniques based on whether it's CBT or psychodynamic or all these different styles. So the lights were gone. <laughs> the attention was gone. So I was so crabby about it. I was like, I want to do the emergency stuff until I had, turns out my mentor taught us for two years in didactics in class. He finally was the first one to say, this is how you do therapy. The rest were sort of like, well, you could say this. Well, you could say that. Well, why don't we give some homework? And that to me wasn't as exciting as, okay, People have these emotions, they defend against them by doing this, and then you get to those by doing that. So that whole was like, ah, like <laughs> falling in love. It was just this huge moment for me. And that was back in the 90s before we got divided into MDs do medication and psychologists do therapy. So now I have this sort of identity crisis again where I'm an MD but I mostly do psychotherapy because I love it. Mm -hmm. I do some work with medications, but it's mostly now taking people off medication. So people come to me when they want to get off the medication and figure it out. Okay, that's really interesting. That's a great background because I can really mm -hmm. see how that's progressed into what you do now, that you clearly have right. such an intense fascination in the sort of cause and effect of emotions, like not only the, the prescription side of it and how certain drugs are going to influence your mental health, but also how the kind of internal processes of how people think and feel add up. Yeah, I want to get to the why. It's like a puzzle for me every day. It's like that, okay, because every story is different. You know, mm -hmm. how they get there is always different. So they, they come in like, I have anxiety. I don't know why I've got the best life or I'm depressed. I've, I've got this great life. and I'm in this great relationship. Then things start to <laughs> reveal themselves and I'm you know, putting these connections together. And it's just so fascinating. In the United States, we have then the crisis of whether to go private or whether to go with insurance. And that was another identity crisis I had to resolve. But I advertised, this is back in the days we did it in the paper. I had this great woman who did copy for me and she wrote this whole dedicated, instead of saying I don't take insurance, she said dedicated to patient privacy. There's no receptionist. There's no, it's a circular setup. So you never see another patient, all these ways I kept it private. And I don't fact anything off to third parties. All of a sudden, I had all these men, these professional and executive men in my practice. And it was my mentor, the same guy who taught me in residency. He said, you know, that's really unusual. You should look into why that is, because usually women have more women than men. So I, it was that privacy piece. All of a sudden, there's these executive men who are these golden boys. You know, they had all this success their whole life, but they couldn't figure out how to fix their relationship. And they felt so demeaned and embarrassed that they couldn't solve this problem. It's just emotions should be so easy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they would, they actually parked down the street 
and walk in so they wouldn't be seen coming into my office. And it was so moving to me. And so then that niche developed sort of by accident of working with executive and professional men. Wow, that's really fascinating. And in a way, it doesn't actually surprise me because to me, that very much speaks to the stigma, particularly where you mentioned that people would come to you and they talk about their life going well, so they don't know why they feel like this. And I think often I see that being in part because people like to explain away mental illness, that it can be easier to find an excuse for it than to face it. And so I think for a lot of people, they then can reach a point in their life where there isn't an obvious excuse. And that can be the time they have to face it. Right. And that excuse is often the other person's problem. I picked the wrong person or if you only, if you only, if you only. And so I've had to help them see that they have the power to cope with it in an emotionally healthier fashion or relationally healthier fashion. And so to give them the power to be able to either put up boundaries or what have you, or to state what they're feeling as opposed to just trying to change the other person for their best interest, right? It would Mm -hmm. help you, it would help us. Um, I'm helping them. So then they would come back with me, but that's selfish to be thinking about how I can set boundaries or how my anxiety is doing this or my anger is doing that. (laughs) I had to do the whole, what's wrong with being selfish? And they're like, oh my God, you know, the whole world's going to end in this whole thing. So it's kind of a tongue in cheek play on words because no matter what I said about them, you can't change anybody. You can only change yourself. And it became the whole, well, that's selfish. So that led to my lead magnet and article that's gotten everybody's attention. That's interesting. It's such an odd contrast as well, in a way that the way you're describing it is that these clients of yours would often come in and describe issues with their partner as being their thing. But then when it comes to issues with themselves, there's not that same ownership. It's not a them thing. It's an us thing. (laughs) Right, right. It's a sort of odd irony. And actually, when I hear a lot of that, to me, it just screams that it's communication issues. Yeah, exactly. That I think a lot of the time, particularly for men, where in examples like with a lot of your clients, they're from a very successful background and they're used to building successful relationships based on their work and their productivity and their status, perhaps to an extent. That's how they build relationships at work. And so then to be building relationships at home where there's communication problems that don't relate to productivity, that can be quite challenging. It's so incredibly true. And in fact, it's that point where if I said this is just a communication problem, they start screaming, I don't have trouble communicating with anybody else. <laughs> That's what when I'm at work, I'm the big cheese. People hire me from all over the world and I get solved problems. So I had to stop saying that because it was, although it's true, they heard it as, you know, again, as a fault of theirs. And we had to come around it with, you have more power than you think. Mm-hmm. And the communication issue, we had to break down in three parts. First, you have to know what your emotion is. So many people, it was shocking to me can't admit to certain emotions, which I call the enemy emotions, especially neediness, sadness, and anger. Those three, literally, they would not be able to say, I'm angry. She was late. How did you feel? Well, she's wrong. Well, she shouldn't be. Well, something wrong. I had to drag this out of it. Sometimes even giving them, I have to give them the options. Here are some feeling words. It sounds condescending, but they actually could not name a feeling. So then, so the communication involves Knowing knowing what you feel and then how to express it 
and then what to do if you're on separate pages, like compromising. So we had to, had to break it up into those three steps and, and use it from the source of you have the power to change this yourself because sometimes the significant other wouldn't come in because she knew or he knew he was going to berate the person into changing. So I also became known as the couples counselor without the couple. <laughs> That's so interesting. And that makes sense. And it's certainly something I've been on both sides of where I've had to purposely work at communicating emotions accurately. That oftentimes it can feel more comfortable to describe things as that made me angry that they did that rather than saying that upset me. Exactly. That can feel so much harder to admit to. Do you mind sharing your kind of thinking on why it can be so much easier to admit to some emotions than others? It's a lot of our society and it's a lot about masculinity where so many people have connected something to an emotion. It's like a symbolic thing. It's almost like a phobia where people have connected being bitten and killed to a spider or a snake or something like that. So we have to figure out what that is. But it typically is with anger or hurting someone in anger are linked. Mm-hmm. With neediness, it's weakness. Weakness and neediness are linked and sadness and despair are linked. So we spend a lot of time trying to unconnect those things. You you can really admit you're angry and nobody dies. Nobody gets hurt. <laughs> this is just admitting in their own heads. They can't. I'll say, what's wrong with anger? Or, or I'll say, how do you deal with anger? This is how I find out what their emotion is. I'll say, well, how do you typically deal with anger? angry. I don't get angry. Oh, uh, anger. Oh, no, no. I I, I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm not going to hurt anybody. No, no, no. I, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) And it becomes pretty obvious. But that whole, I don't get angry. I don't want to hurt anybody comes right after. I've even noticed that a lot with my own experience and how my communication has changed from doing a podcast like this one. And that's changed a lot of my personal relationships with a lot of my friends. I'm more emotionally honest now. And I see the same thing that you do, that I'll mention a certain emotion and then they'll they'll look scared by it. Like I'll be yeah. sad and I may be actually just reporting a fact. I'm right. not actually asking them for anything. I'm just like, I'm sad. I'll be OK in the morning. I need to sleep. Right. You know, I've now gone the complete opposite way where I can <laughs> be so matter of fact about honest emotions that that could almost scare people. Like, how is he just throwing all these emotions around? <laughs> He's so comfortable with himself. <laughs> and another thing I wanted to pick up with you was where you mentioned about the selfishness element, that you have to encourage a lot of your clients to maybe not see themselves as selfish, but put more of the power back into themselves within that relationship, that they're not a recipient of the relationship, they're a part of it, and they're allowed to want things from it. Because that's nice saying it. Thank you. Because ultimately, I think that's where a lot of the core of the link of mental health and relationships comes from, is that depending on the quality of the relationship, it can massively impact positively or negatively your mental health. Exactly. And People need to be empowered to not just acknowledge that, but act accordingly. Yeah, I like how you say that in your podcast, actually, about how relationships can make or break your mental health. And it's sort of that people do sometimes go into relationships saying this relationship is going to save me. It's going to make me happy. It's going to make me fulfilled. 
but you, you need to play a role in that. And that's where they get a little confused because another part of our society is, you know, altruistic, you help everybody, you'll be happy. So it's to have to undo all that. It's really like they were brainwashed or they, they brainwashed themselves. And I have to undo that. So I have to keep bringing them back to, to, to be a part of it. It has to be you led. And then if you're happy and satisfied, you're half the relationship. You're not going to have that resentment that you think you're hiding, but you're not. <laughs> you know, it's not like that vibe isn't going to be there anymore. And so the relationship will prove just on that. And it's so hard for them to believe that by being self-focused, self-centered. I always go through the whole, you know, where's the line? They, they say it's selfish. I'm like, well, how's that different than self-aware or having self-esteem? You know, How come you're putting such a negative spin on it as opposed to the more positive if I'm happier? I can then, you know, they'll put your own oxygen mask on it. Why do they say that? Because you'll be able to give more without resentment if you start with you. For sure. I really love that point that selfishness is in a way like those emotions you talked about. It's such an emotive word and we're sort of raised in a way to, to frown upon that idea of selfishness. But actually, as you've explained there, you're absolutely allowed and entitled to have things you want out of a relationship. You're one half of it. And not only is that good for you, but a happy partner is a better partner. Right, right. And able to give more, ironically. (laughs) Yeah, I can really see how a lot of your clients take a bit of time to sort of unpick that because it can feel on the surface of it a little bit counterproductive that I'm having issues with them. Therefore, I need to focus on me more. Right. But like you've mentioned, they can't change that person. Right. But they can work on themselves. Exactly. They have the power and control over themselves. It's, it's really so much easier than trying to change and berate and scold, this other, try to get the other person to do what they want. So that's like a double whammy, right? Double benefit. If they start focusing on themselves, they become happy. But so does the partner because they're not being, you know, harangued all the time. Right. Because there's always the two of you in it. That I imagine a lot of your clients come to you with a certain confusion about some of their partner's behavior. That they're coming to you hoping you have the answers on why they're behaving a certain way or why certain things upset them. And actually, the person with the answers to that is their partner. Mm-hmm. But right. that doesn't mean they can't still have ownership over that communication and encourage them to open up and communicate more effectively. Right. By the way they present it, they can right, therefore encourage them to speak up more or it fosters an environment where the person is not as afraid to speak up because they're not going to be attacked for what they're saying. Or a lot of, a lot of my patients are terrified about being on a separate page. That's another issue that comes up that when they finally get to the point where they're able to say, this is how I feel about that. And then their partner goes, oh, that's interesting because I feel that. Mm-hmm. Then they panic. Then it has to be a right or wrong thing. I always say no one has to die. Those are both valid. There's no law. There's nothing written on stone. Which one's more valid than the other? It's all valid. Then you then you get together. Or you're staying together. You look at, okay, this is what's on the table. You like this? I like this. What are we going to do? What together can we do to bridge this gap between us? Absolutely. And I feel like within that, it can be at times the smallest changes to approach. 
So one idea the listeners could try out is when they're approaching issues in a relationship that are maybe kind of ongoing would be opening up their questioning. So something as seemingly simple as changing from a why are you acting like this or why do you feel that way to instead asking how do you feel comes across a lot less combative. Yeah, especially if you add the I feel this, what do you feel? Right. So if you add your piece first, it takes them a little off guard. Otherwise, if there's a history of this trying to change the other person, they're going to be a little defensive. So if you start with, well, I'm feeling this way, I'm curious, how do you feel it it's a little bit easier for that person not to be defensive yeah i really love that and the next thing i wanted to ask you about is when you're working with clients how do you manage situations where you believe their partner is unhealthy for them that's a great question because we've been talking about how you can be selfish self-motivated self-aware in order to start that better healthier communication but there's also destructive relationship patterns, right? I, I would picture it like a scale. So it doesn't matter who is the unhealthy one because either you're not effectively putting up a boundary against unhealthy behavior or you're engaging in unhealthy mm-hmm. behavior. So either way, we can work on what to do. So that's why I always say it only takes one person to, to break the pattern because you're Half the pattern. If someone is unhealthy and you're not putting up boundaries or you're enabling that behavior, we can help you say, that's not going to work for me. That's upsetting to me. I need you to stop. When they come to me and their partner, if they've come to me and their partner's doing something unhealthy, it's almost always because they get into the whole trying to change the partner thing, which makes them defensive, or they're just caving and just putting up with it as opposed to putting up healthy boundaries. Right. I, I love that way of phrasing it. And it also highlights that as much as we're talking about you having more power than you think in a relationship, that actually a lot of how your partner is behaving does relate back to you, even if it's not clear. At the same time, that doesn't mean you're responsible for their behavior. That just because you have a certain level of power doesn't mean if they're unhealthy for you, that's necessarily within your power. Right. Right. You, but you're, you're in charge of your reaction. You're, you're, you're part of the pattern, right? I'm just thinking about a, a, this one patient who was new and he's saying, but my wife does this talking under her breath all the time. She's passive aggressive talking under, but I can't hear. And I keep saying, what are you saying? What are you saying? And I, you, you need to talk to me. You need to not talk under your breath. He's like, what do I do? I said, stop talking. <laughs> Don't say anything. Because all it was doing was it was just enabling her to do it more. If she talks under her breath and you don't hear it, don't say anything. She's either going to have to talk louder or stop doing it. <laughs> so he came back like a few sessions later and he's like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> why did it take me so long to figure that out? It's because like, you want you're He was in that whole mindset of I got to change her in order to help my emotions. Opposed to you can put up a boundary against unhealthy behavior. Yeah. And that can understandably feel very uncomfortable to people. Even that way of phrasing it is completely accurate. But I can imagine you'd say you need to put up more boundaries with you and your partner. And a lot of people would react quite badly to that language. Right, because they already feel emotionally disconnected. 
So I think sometimes you've probably seen this too, where sometimes I think fighting is their passion. It's some passion at least. <laughs> but when I say put up a boundary, walk the walk away, don't say anything, the constructive passive moves, they think I'm gonna, you know, lose that person forever. Right. They hear it as a I'm I'm gonna be more distant from them. It's the longer term picture of you're gonna get closer because you aren't resentful for having to beg her for something she's not going to do and she's not as resentful because you're haranguing her, you know, for doing this. Yeah. And it can feel a lot like pushing somebody away. If you're not used to that, if that's not a part mm-hmm. of your natural romantic relationship building. Right. But actually it's really important. And particularly when it comes to anyone who's experiencing mental illness, whether that's you, your partner or both, I think it's even more important. There are certain things you may need to put boundaries in for the sake of your health. Exactly. So the people are typically raised with either valuing aggression or valuing passivity more. And so they end up overusing one of those. So then I have to also teach them that there is such a thing as constructive and destructive aggression, and there's constructive and destructive passivity. And they need to be aware of and comfortable with all of those. They don't do the destructive. They can pull out the appropriate one at the appropriate time because either they're caving all the time and miserable, you know, no one's ever helping me, I'm helping everybody, or they're just almost like a bully because they're just trying to change, change, do something, do something all the time. That's so interesting. So ultimately, it's coming back to either they're not giving me space to be heard, or I keep saying the things and they're still not hearing me. (laughs) Right. It tends to be something along those lines where one of those was valued over the others. And that's certainly something I've seen a lot with people in my life, that at times you meet people's parents and suddenly their approach to life makes a whole load more sense. (laughs) And so we are coming near the end of our time. So I feel like the natural thing to talk about next is the end of relationships. Do you have any particular thoughts on how to decide if it's time to let a relationship go? A lot of people don't ask me that, but it's so important. We get so wrapped up in having relationships. It's just as important to know when to end one if you're going to find one that works the best for you. That usually gets us into red flag behavior. I, a lot of people are holding on to someone who's very obviously not good for them. Um, they're engaged in illegal behavior or they can't take care of themselves or they're you know, constantly hurting themselves. And they're like, how can I fix this? <laughs> something's keeping you from admitting that you can't and that this person isn't a good fit for you. And that brings up the grief again. And so what I see there is, again, that's when sadness is somehow not allowed. They're so terrified of going into the grief that they will just hold on to something that's unhealthy all the way through. So then we have to get to what's wrong with sadness, what's wrong with grief, what is the fear that you keep yourself from, you know, uh, experiencing that. And for a lot of people, I think that can really uncover unhealthy reasons why they're in relationships. So if someone is, for example, very worried about being on their own, they might be more likely to be the person that jumps from relationship to relationship. And unless that is examined, 
that's just going to go on happening. Right, exactly. So there's something, then we have to get into the, what's the anxiety being on your own and what makes you think that's going to go on forever? And, you know, why is that all negative and not a more balanced approach? Yeah. And that, you know, usually some history behind that as well. It's interesting. So I think we'll finish up then just bringing it back again to mental health. Do you have any kind of advice you would give people on deciding how to navigate communication about mental illness in a relationship? Like to what extent should they be communicating how they're they're feeling and how they're experiencing mental illness day to day and what kind of boundaries may need to be put in place to keep them healthy, but also perhaps to not overwhelm their partner? Exactly. So if you really understand if we take one thing away from this is understand that you alone, if you work on you and accepting all of your emotions, you know, there's no such thing as a right or wrong emotion or thought. And if you can work on simply accepting yourself, accepting every emotion that comes through and giving it just a little bit of life by just thinking about it, not even talking about acting it out or saying anything, but if you can learn to accept these emotions, you'll get so much better at understanding your emotional self. That'll be the very best step you can take to then start being able to communicating from an I standpoint. I always give the template to my patients. I feel X when you do Y. So that when you know what you feel and be able to say it in that terminology, so it's not threatening and it's not trying to change your partner. That alone will take you in a direction that maybe you've never been. Absolutely. I really love there the way you mentioned exploring how your emotional responses are being affected by your partner and are affecting your partner. So that's the only thing I'd really add to that is that it is so important to take ownership, particularly if you experience mental illness, in understanding what you're going through, what your triggers are, how that's going to affect other people, because the person you're romantically involved in, for better or for worse, they're going to get the most of that. Right. And in addition to that, there is still work that your partner should be doing in terms of better understanding perhaps a specific condition you have as well. So that that, that can be a process on both sides, but that doesn't mean we can't all have our own ownership. And that's certainly something that as my romantic relationships have grown and become more adult, I guess I would describe them as, that's been something I've learned is a real deciding factor on who is a good person for me to be with. Because I'm so focused on me growing, they also need to be focused on them growing. That's, that's exactly, you said it really lovely. The idea is even if your partner has an emotional problem, it's how it's impacting you that has to be aired out. So I feel sad and anxious when you are crying all the time, or I'm irritated that you no longer seem interested in our sex life, or I get worried about your health when you drink to excess. So even if they have a problem, it's your reaction to the problem that's the most valuable component to the relational issue. I really love that. It's similar to something that my counsellor says to me a lot, which is mm-hmm. you can't control other people's feelings. You can, you can react to it and you can control your own, but you can't control other people's feelings. And if you think about it, if you're saying this hurts me when you do that, 
it's so much more compelling. If we love somebody, we want to change to keep them from being hurt. It's so much more compelling to somebody to change as opposed to you demanding it mm-hmm. or saying they should or what, what or shaming them into it. That that's not going to get any buy-in from them. But if you say it hurts you, there's much higher chance they're going to be motivated to change because you have said how much it hurts you. Absolutely. And I imagine that's something that a lot of your clients will understand if explained in that way, because they're often from high power business backgrounds where they're taught you'll do better with motivating employees if you say this would be even better if, as opposed to you did this wrong. Yeah, it, right. There's a different version of this in, in the business books. But, it, but we are also taught, you know, and it's true, we don't say, you hurt my feelings that you didn't do it the way I said. We're, you know, in business, we're taught to say, you know, this didn't work for me. You take the emotion out of it. That's why I always say, that's why you, if you don't add the emotion piece to your intimate relationship, then it's just a business relationship. Adding that P, that word that you're so afraid of saying, I'm angry, sad, or I need something is keeping you, that's the intimacy. Intimacy is, is revealing. Intimacy is transparency because you can't be transparent. You're not supposed to be transparent. It's awkward to be transparent with anybody else. This is the moment to share what you are feeling. And that's when so many people shut down or cover it up or do whatever, and they lose that intimate moment right there. For sure. Totally agree. And so we'll wrap up there. If people want to find out more about you, where should they go online? Well, actually, we have a special gift for your listeners. Oh, great. (laughs) Very organized. So since I'm in the States, I didn't want to give a phone number. I love to talk to people on the phone, but this may be even better for your listeners. And it's at, let me read it here, lauradabney.com backslash mental podcast UK. Okay, I will link that in the episode description. So if people want to learn more about your work and get a special gift, they can go to that address. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great chatting to you. Okay, and thank you so much. It's always fun to do this. I would love hearing other people's take on their therapy and their experiences. It help, helps me grow too. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough.